Welcome to our Clothed with the Sun daily podcast, our reading and meditation on the gospel of the day. I am James Thomas. Today is Tuesday, January the 16th, 2024. It is the second Tuesday in Ordinary Time. Our gospel reading for today is from the gospel according to St. Mark. As Jesus was passing through a field of grain on the Sabbath, his disciples began to make a path while picking the heads of grain. At this, the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions were hungry? How he went into the house of God when Abiathar was high priest, and ate the bread of offering that only the priest could lawfully eat, and shared it with his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is why the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So, when it comes to this reading, I get it, both for King David and for the twelve apostles, or however many apostles were there, they were hungry. And taking care of hunger is a high priority. And yes, even on the Sabbath, we have to eat. I get it. It makes a lot of sense. And the Lord is trying to get them away from this. Well, it's just like what we have with so many people today. They rigorously follow the rules, but not the spirit of the rule. There's no charity. The golden rule is not present because they're so concerned about ritualistic exactness. Whereas the point of the law and the point of our Lord's teachings And we could study the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation is meant to, well, it's meant for our salvation. It's meant to bring us into contact with God. It's meant to save our souls. That all being said, I have wrestled with this quote from Jesus that says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I wrestle with that. Because what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is a holy day. The Sabbath is all about God. The Sabbath is a time, and it could even be a place. And we're really supposed to live the Sabbath every day, but in particular, there's that one day a week that is God's day in which we worship God. We focus on him. It says that God rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath begins with God and what he did at creation. But then it was always understood as a day for God and the human race to come together in which we worship him. Now, when you think about it, what does God really need? He needs nothing. He has everything. He's the king of the universe. He has made all things. God does not need us, but God loves us. God chooses us. Rather, we need him. Now, there are some people that will take this expression to the opposite extreme and say, see, God doesn't care what you do. God doesn't care what you're thinking, what you're wearing. God, God's just happy you're there. He, and all right, to some degree, that's true. But when people are like, well, God should just be happy that I'm there. No, he doesn't need you to be there. You're there for your good. You're there for your sake. 
Yet, and this is really, I guess, the paradox. There's many paradoxes in our faith. The Sabbath is for you and me because God doesn't need any of it. Everything, when it comes to God relating to the human race, everything is a grace, everything is mercy, because we can't do it without him. We are nothing without him, yet with him, we can do everything. With him, we have everything. With him, we are everything. But it comes from him. It's all about him. The irony is this. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man. And yes, we're making that point here, that it's all about what we need. Yet, still, and this, is not, this isn't about the field of grain anymore. This isn't about the disciples being hungry. This is just about our worship and even in particular, the Sabbath day. God doesn't need it, but we benefit to the degree that we give everything to God. Think about that. It's a great irony. The more we give it all to God, the more we benefit. And I'll give some examples of this, what I mean by this. But when we try to focus on ourselves, we get less. The greatest example I can think of, which is always on my mind because of my constant frustration with so many contemporary liturgies, is let's just imagine we're praying the Our Father. Now, in the old rite, the priest says the Our Father. People can hear him saying it because he says it out loud. They follow along. And then we all say the final line, Sed liberanos amalo, which is very often sung. It's deliver us from evil. We sing that together with the priest. But the priest says it on behalf of the peace, the people. The priest, that's his job. He go, he's the go-between, and he offers prayers on behalf of the people. Now, in the Novus Ordo, the new rite, we say it together, but we're still offering a prayer to the Father, which, by the way, is the whole Mass. And the priest stands in front of the congregation with his arms spread out in the Oran's position, indicating he's the priest. He represents the people. He's the go-between between God and the people. He offers the prayers of his own and of the people and of the church in general to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And so we've developed this habit of putting our hands up as if we're the priest in the pew, and that's not the case. And we've developed a habit of holding hands. Now, don't get me wrong. Holding hands in prayer. Is there a time and a place for it? Sure. I remember the first time I went to Medjugorje. Not that this is an endorsement of Medjugorje. The church is still discerning and studying it and ruling on it and things like that. So, you know, I always have to make that disclaimer. I, I personally love Medjugorje, but I defer to whatever the judgment of the church will be. But the first time I went there and I experienced a tremendous conversion uh, during every single mass, everybody holds hands. And at that point in my life, I was a teenager and I thought that was beautiful and, and it, gave, it was meaningful for me. It was something new. It was something different. And I was getting a lot of support from other people helping me to grow in my faith. So the fact that we were all holding hands while we prayed the Our Father, okay, it was meaningful and I, I got good feelings from that. And sometimes families or prayer groups, groups of people will pray together and hold hands while they pray. And there's nothing wrong with that. These are good, beautiful things. But 
And when we think about the Mass, the essence of the Mass, what the Mass is, the more we focus on each other, let's just say I go in alone and let's just say there's somebody next to me. Maybe they just sneezed on their hand and now they want to hold my hand. So now I'm extremely attentive to them and not to the prayers. Let's just say there's a really attractive woman next to me and she wants to hold my hand during the Our Father. Well, guess what I'm thinking of now all during the Our Father? I'm not thinking of God the Father. I might be saying, Father, thank you (laughs) for this woman. But my point is, in the liturgy, this is just one example of the point I'm making with the sermon. In the liturgy, we are meant to focus on God. And to the degree that we focus on God, see, and that's where the unity is. We worship the same Father. We receive in communion the same Jesus. And that is the source of our bond. That creates a bond at the deepest level of our being when we're all communing with God. That's the source of the bond. And when we're holding hands and when we're doing so much else in the liturgy that makes it more horizontal, that is focused on each other, we don't get as much out of the liturgy. We don't receive as much grace from it. We don't truly bond with each other. I mean, it's just like couples today, people today dating. They jump in bed by the first, second, third date, whatever. And they create a false bond. They create a false sense of unity. When in reality, they don't know each other. In reality, there is a bond that needs to happen if they are going to pursue marriage one day that sleeping together actually gets in the way of. It creates an emotional euphoria so that you're not actually looking at each other objectively and saying, all right, how can we grow? And is this person truly meant to be my spouse? We put the icing before the cake. We put the cart before the horse. The Sabbath was made for man. It's true. It's God's gift to us. But what is the Sabbath? It's a day for us to worship the Lord. Um, a couple of years ago, I had just gotten on Facebook and I posted some things about Holy Week and Good Friday. And then somebody I used to know when I was younger that I became Facebook friends with, uh, he posted something that was completely obscene about Jesus, indicating that Jesus was gay and that, I mean, I don't want to repeat what it said because it was extremely offensive. And I told him, that's very offensive. What are you doing? And he said, I'll worship in the way I want to worship. You worship in the way you want to worship. And I didn't want to continue the conversation, so I just unfriended him. I I don't feel like Facebook arguments are really the place where you're going to accomplish anything or experience any breakthroughs emotionally, spiritually, otherwise, and intellectually. But I thought to myself, you and I have a very definition of the word worship. Worship doesn't mean uh, mentioning Jesus in an obscene joke. Even if he was considering that part of a friendship that he has with Jesus, he talks to Jesus in a certain way that's disrespectful. I mean, okay, everybody's got their own prayer life. Everybody has their own way of talking to the Lord. And maybe some people are a little rougher than others in the way that they talk. I get it. But worship is putting ourselves aside. Worship is putting aside pride and crudeness and whatever else. Worship is putting aside sin. Because in worship, if we're truly worshiping God, we wish to please him. Worship is where we say to the Lord, 
Lord, I give you myself and I'm obedient to you and I humble myself before you. I bow before you. I desire to do your will. I desire to be yours. I desire to take all that I am and all that I own and all that I have and submit it to you and to your authority. So some examples of how worship makes everything better. (laughs) And this is me resolving my struggles with this passage. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, yet it's about worship. It's it's about the Lord. It's all about the Lord. Here's a great example. The church was in the catacombs until the Edict of Milan was signed by Constantine in 313 AD. The next hundred years, the church was on the surface, no longer in the catacombs, and they built churches, and everyone became Christian. The emperors and the governors and the Roman citizens— and people of other places, it was much easier to evangelize now because, well, it was going hand in hand with the Romans uh, conquering the world, owning the world, running the world. Very similar to the conquistadors that came over to Mexico and Central America, and so did the Jesuits that were converting the natives. Now, it doesn't mean they were necessarily working together, the good and the bad, Um It's the state of the human race. There's always the good and the bad and the ugly all mixed up together. But the fact is, in the Roman Empire, after Christianity was legalized, then more and more everybody became Christian. And in a very short amount of time, everything became corrupt. Everything became very horizontal, worldly-centered. Everybody tried to make it more about status, and it happens very often today in today's church. People say, oh, I go to church, and I do this, and I know that one, and I do whatever. I'm involved in this. I'm a member of this club, the Legion of Mary, Knights of Columbus, Altar Rosary, whatever. And it becomes very horizontal. It's a social club maybe with a a crucifix in the room and a little bit of prayer at the beginning of the meeting. It's more and more horizontal. And what happened after a century of the Roman Empire approving Christianity They weren't evangelizing anymore. The numbers started to drop and the people became very lax in their faith and church leaders became corrupt. This happens all the time over the centuries. And so there was a decline in faith the more that everybody was part of the faith. It's just like the the Catholic Church in America in the past 50 years. Oh, look, the Kennedys are Catholic. Oh, look, now we have a Catholic presence among the leadership of our country. And now, yeah, right after that, I'm not saying anything about the Kennedys. I don't really know how they practice their faith. But, I mean, we hear some things about JFK and affairs or whatever. Who knows? But what happens to Catholicism right after that? Oh, I'm Catholic, but the Catholic butts all come out and they stink. And they say, oh, I'm Catholic, but I'm pro-choice. I'm Catholic, but I'm pro-gay marriage. I'm Catholic, but I'm whatever. I'm pro-contraception. I'm uh, pro-IVF. The list goes on and on and on. Catholicism became corrupted. Whereas, getting back to that early church, there was a man by the name of Benedict who saw the corruption in the church in the mainstream society. He wanted to give his life to God, but not, I mean, they were trying to recruit him to the priesthood and they were offering him wealth and they were offering him women. And, and parties and things like that, once again, stuff we see nowadays. He said, I want to do this for real. I want to become holy. 
So it was his idea to go out into the desert. There were already hermits out there, but he developed monasticism. He developed the Benedictine order and the church started to thrive again there and over the centuries with other monks in their monastic communities like St. Bernard and the Cistercians, like so many others. St. Boniface going into Germany and founding monastery, St. Patrick going into Ireland. They made it more about the Lord. They made it all about worship. And as a result, now you have people growing in holiness again in these places. The church starts to thrive again. It starts to grow again. The Sabbath was made for man. But what is the Sabbath? It's making it all about the Lord. The more it's all about the Lord, the more we benefit. Another way to say that is God can't be outdone in generosity. So that's the lesson for today. (laughs) The Sabbath was made for man. Jesus is telling us, I've come to give you something absolutely amazing, but we have to understand what it's all about. It's not about rigorous rules that go nowhere. Rather, it's about us because God wants it to be about us. And how do we benefit? By giving God our all, by giving him everything. These apostles weren't lazy loafers that were just, you know, (laughs) uh, homeless people taking advantage of a system or something like that. I think that's how the Pharisees were looking at them. No, rather, they were following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and they were going to go out and be martyred. And they were going to spread this faith throughout the world. So let them eat a little bit of grain on the Sabbath. Leave them alone. So we, uh, we ask the Lord for this grace that we may always put him first together with Our Lady. May we follow her example of following Jesus, worshiping the Father, giving him everything, all that we possibly can so that he receives what he deserves. And then in his endless generosity, we benefit more and more and more. Have a great day. God bless you.